Father, we pray that as we open up your inerrant uh, word that carries your eternal truths, steady our minds and our heads and our hearts that we may uh, listen to what you have to say and that we may through it, Father, see Jesus. In his name alone we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, thanks, Pastor Teza, for your introduction. Uh, it sounds far too grand to me, actually, uh, all those kinds of things. But it's, it's great to be with you here this morning. And it's a particular privilege uh, to be sharing with other pastors uh, around the place here in Jakarta. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. And also just to be here this morning to look at Galatians with you. I know that's a bit of a break in your sermon series. You've been doing Acts lately. Uh, but we're just going to look at... Galatians this morning and as we do let me uh, continue to pray um, as we come before God's word. Father God we thank you and praise you that you've caused scripture to be written for our learning. We pray that as we come together this morning we may hear and read and learn and inwardly digest them and we pray that as we do that uh, and through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace what you have to say to us and that we may actually live that out in our lives together. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the series on uh, Galatians chapter, oh, sorry, a passage from Galatians chapter 5. Um, I'm going to have some things up on the screen here. I hope you're able to see them as we go through. But what I wanted to do first of all is to start with a very, very big picture. Uh, sometimes people think about the Bible in a series of chapters. And one way of doing this, and it's not the only way, is to think of creation, fall, redemption, renewal, and restoration. And the idea is that if we see ourselves as part of God's story, we understand what God is doing and how things are unfolding. And of course, as Paul preaches to the church in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, um, he's speaking to them as people who have understood what it means to be redeemed. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, we read, Grace and peace to you from our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. So they understand that. And now he's in the process of talking to them about what it means to live that life in light of what Christ has done for them and in light of what Christ is doing for them through the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the problems that the Galatians are facing is this. There are a number of people in Galatia who are saying to the Galatian church, you need to do things in the old way. Our Jewish leaders who have said to them, look, what we think should happen, particularly those of you who are Gentiles, who are not Jewish, we want you to be circumcised. We want you to become under the law that was given under the Jews. Now, what Paul has done so far in the letter is that he's thought about this with the various leaders. And he's done this by saying to them, look, what is happening here is these Jewish leaders are asking you to go backwards. What Christ has done is complete your relationship to the law is now different. And what I want to do now is to point you forward. I want to point you forward in a particular way. Now, he spent a lot of his letter 
um, arguing and dissuading the Christian, uh, Christian Galatians from this course of action by talking to them about the law and how it works and what is actually happening. And of course, he's done that because he believes that's the best way to dissuade them. But that's not the only thing he's done. As I've mentioned, one of the things he's trying to do is to capture their hearts and their minds with the idea that God has something, a bigger picture in view for them. And so what he wants them to do is to look forward. And so this morning, as we look at this passage together, what I want to do is to think about this. As, being, as we're part of God's story, it leads to us belonging into Christ Jesus, who's adopted us as his children. This leads to a spirit-powered transformation, which has implications for the way that we work together as Christians, the way we live together as Christians. So let me read the passage, and then we'll break the passage up into three different sections and look at it together. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to the point in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too will be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, he is nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now as we get into this particular passage, what I want to do is, is understand the context a little bit from, uh, in terms of what Paul is saying here in Galatians. And to do that, I want to look at this idea here of those who belong in Jesus Christ. Up until this point, one of the ways that Paul has been speaking is to remind people that they belong to Christ Jesus. They belong to Christ Jesus. Now, I wonder if you've ever been in the situation where you have not felt like you belonged. Uh, perhaps you've been in a situation in your family where you do not feel like you belong. Uh, perhaps someone in your family has rejected you, a brother, a sister, a mother or father. Perhaps you've been in a situation where your friends have rejected you. Uh, many of us have had that experience in, in school years of friends rejecting us. Of course, that doesn't go away in the workplace either. There are frequently times where in the workplace we feel like we may not belong for a whole range of different reasons. Of course, the other possibility is you might not feel like you belong because you're trapped between two cultures. And that's actually been my experience. I grew up in Sarawak, Malaysia um, as a child. My parents were missionaries there and they worked with the Kayan people. And I loved living there. I was there until I was 15 years old. Uh, you can imagine the shock when I came back to Australia in Sydney and tried to imagine what it was like to be in a Western culture. I did not belong. I look very white, <laughs> clearly. But all my thinking and all my ways of processing things were deeply influenced by the context I'd grown up in. And so lots of times, I just did not understand what was taking place. 
And some of you may have that feeling yourself. You're, you're like a third culture person. You're trapped between two cultures. You're actually not really belonging to one and not really belonging to another. And so you wonder where you belong. You wonder, how do you fit in? And one of the greatest comforts to me has been this statement about belonging. Belonging to Christ Jesus. And what's even of greater comfort to me is that I know that there is someone who understands what it's not to belong. Someone, as Isaiah 53 reminds us, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was shamed, rejected. He did not belong. And Jesus understands and knew what it was not to belong. Now, of course, one of the challenges about not belonging is we often place our longings for belonging in the wrong place. Sometimes if we long for belonging, if we've missed out at some level, we put pressures on our marriages and we insist the other person respond to us so that we belong. We put pressures on our friends and insist and behave in particular ways that say, I need to belong, you need to make sure that I belong. Perhaps most damaging of all is that sometimes we place that on our kids. We demand that our children make us feel like we belong. So they have to be present at certain times, in certain ways, so that we feel like we belong. But Jesus, who knows what it is like to and not like to, to, to like to not belong, knows about those misplaced belonging, longings, knows that our hearts reach out to the wrong things, that we love things too much or too little. And he knows that at the heart of our misplaced longings is a longing to belong to the one who created us. that we had been cut off from God because of our transgressions. And so, Jesus became one who did not belong so that we could belong. Galatians 4 has a beautiful way of stating this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that beautiful, intimate, close, belonging kind of prayer. So that we are no longer slaves, but we are heirs through God. Just remarkable, isn't it? Just remarkable that God would reach out to us in his son, the one who did not belong 
so that we could belong. And he draws us in and he says, you belong. You belong to Jesus Christ. You belong. I can't tell you how comforting those words are and how life-changing they have been for me. Over and over again, I come back to that sense of knowing that I belong because I'm adopted son of God. Well, to the extent we understand that is the extent to which we can then live that out. And Paul here wants to take us on a journey that says, what does this look like to live this out? He says, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, the, the bit I really want to focus on is what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul says here, let us not become conceited. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so what we're thinking about here is, what does it mean when we belong to Jesus Christ, that we are adopted, but refuse to be involved in conceit? Now, I don't know about you, uh, conceit is not a word I'm terribly familiar with. Uh, it's not a word that I use very often. I don't tend to call people, you are conceited. <laughs> uh, it's not something I tend to say. And so I had to do some thinking about this, and Tim Keller's been extremely helpful with this as well. Um, had to mention his name, after all, I'm coming from city to city, so got to get that in. Um, sometimes we call him Saint Tim Keller, which is very unfortunate, because he's actually, he is a saint, of course, like the rest of us. But anyway, back to here. Um, one of the things about the whole idea of being conceited is that conceited means... A perceived absence of honour that leads to needing, uh, sorry, that leads to a need to seek honour for ourselves. So one way of understanding conceit is that it's the robbing of honour of other people. Now, actually, to understand this a little bit further, we need to think about Paul's particular world and the Galatian social world. Recent research has emphasised that what's actually happened in Galatia was that most of the social relationships within Galatia were surrounded around the idea of honour. And so there was a lot of competition for public esteem. Honour was one of the high values of society. And so Paul, as he writes to the people of Galatia, realises they live in a particular society where rivalry and public competition were part of everyday life. Gaining honour for yourself was really important. And you gained honour for yourself by comparing yourself with other people or being placed on a higher scale or having a high, greater place in the hierarchy. And so you gained more honour by pushing people down, or, pushing, or not by pushing people up. And so when we think about it, if conceited means to be an honour thief, it means to try and take honour off other people who deserve it. Now, one way, I guess, modern way of thinking about it is to be a photobomber. You know, photobombers, like they just jump in. I mean, I'm not having a go at photobombers. If you've done that, I'm not really having a go at you. But the, the idea here is, 
a photobomber, jumps into the picture and what they're trying to do is to draw attention to themselves. And that's what conceited actually means in the end. You're an honour thief, which means you're trying to draw attention to your honour, to yourself. And so in the end, you steal honour from other people. Now what's so interesting about this is, Tim Keller goes on to say, that this has two different angles to it. One is to do with provoking, and the other is to do with envying. So when you're conceited, when you want honour for yourself, one of the ways you can want to get that kind of honour is to provoke other people, to put them down. I actually think it's closely related to the idea of bullying other people so that you look good. You start to steal honour for yourself from those around you because you want to look better than everybody else. The other side is a little bit more complicated to understand, and that's to do with envying. I guess the stance of envying mean, as, as Pastor Teza was telling us a little bit earlier, is about wanting something for yourself from other people. You see it on Instagram, as he mentioned. And it's kind of looking at someone else and wanting what they have for yourself. And so in that sense, it's, it's another kind of stealing honour. You're saying, they shouldn't have it, I should have it. What's consistent with both cases is it's self-absorbed. It's all about you. And it's all about you and your relationships to other people. It's not about other people. It's about focusing on yourself. Now, if we understand that stance, it's no surprise then that we actually see this rolled out throughout the whole passage. You see there, um, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Now, it may be tempted by the, what the person's doing, but I actually think it's tempted to be conceited, to stand over the person, to envy the other person. Paul goes on and talks about the bearing of burdens. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but, he lets each, let, but let each one test his own work. Do you see the problem there? It's possible to be conceited in our relationships with one another as Christian people. And Paul is saying, look, you belong to Christ. You have all the honour that me, that, that's part of being adopted as God's child. There's no need for shame. You are honoured. You're a child of God. Don't go stealing it off other people. It's, it's helpful, isn't it? As we think about social media and all those kinds of things which constantly want us to envy or constantly want us to say promote ourselves in a particular way so that people will envy us honor us paul says don't become conceited don't provoke one another and don't envy one another because you have everything in christ jesus you are an adopted child of god's now, what 
that context does is help us think about, I guess, humility and the idea of working. And we saw that in, in the Philippians passage a little bit earlier, where the idea of Jesus becoming humble in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You notice the word printed there. But out of humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now that stance of humility or lack of conceit is then expressed throughout the rest of the passage as we've seen, but it's expressed in particular ways and in particular relationships that we have with one another. So Paul continues in what he has to say, and he says this, brothers, and I think we can say brothers and sisters at this point, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you might be tempted. What's this idea of being caught in a transgression? Uh, there's a number of ways to think about this. Uh, two main ones. Uh, the first one is the idea that you're tripped up. Uh, tripped up by a sin. Maybe you get caught up uh, with someone else or you get caught up yourself. And it's, it's almost like an accident. Pastor Tezo mentioned that I quite like cycling. Uh, I often sit up and watch the Tour de France. And if you've ever watched that, one of the major features is the way people just clip a tyre against a tyre or a bike against a bike or a pedal against a pedal. And all of a sudden, the whole peloton goes down. And so here, I think there is that sense of being caught up, somehow being caught up in a sin with other people. There is a sense also, though, however, that this is a longer-term thing. And I think there is a, possibly another aspect here in which the person is caught up in the sense that it's a continued act of sinfulness in their lives. A continued way of doing things which is against God and against others. And so Paul says, if someone is caught up in this kind of tr transgression. You who are children of God, you who are belong to Christ Jesus, ought to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the humility there. But keep watch on yourself, lest you will be tempted. Okay, so let's come back to this idea of restore. What does it mean to restore someone who has been caught in transgression. Uh, the word here has a broad range of meaning, but one of the ways of thinking about it is to think about the idea of putting a shoulder back, you know, a physiotherapist putting a shoulder back in if the shoulder has popped out. Uh, and so the shoulder is put back in, uh, it, the person is restored, they're in good health again, but it, you needed to pop the shoulder back in when it's popped out. Now, of course, that's pretty painful. <laughs> if you've ever had that happen to you, that's a very painful manoeuvre. But actually, it's quite important for being restored and being back together again. You kind of need it to happen if you're going to act properly. So I think what Paul is saying here is that we, people who belong to Jesus Christ, have a responsibility with one another if we notice that someone is in transgression, to restore them gently. What's so interesting about this 
is that I think what it means is that we are both agents and objects of renewal. In other words, we need to be renewed. We need to change. People need to be able to speak into our lives and say things to us about the way we're living. But also what is true is we have the privilege and we're invited to speak into other people's lives as well as part of the body of Christ, as part of being God's children. Now, I want to suggest to you that that's not particularly easy. Um, and it's not particularly easy for a number of different reasons, and I want to point out two of them and then make another comment about this whole issue of speaking into one another's lives and being ob objects of renewal and agents of renewal. In some societies... Honour still is something that is valued very highly. And the idea of being shamed or isolated from other people is a very strong motive or very strong part of what, what we believe in so that we try to avoid it. And so most of our actions become about avoiding or saving face. And so the idea that I might speak to someone else or they might speak to me comes with a lot of tension, doesn't it? Because I might end up shaming someone else or they may end up shaming me because honour is good and shame is bad. Now, of course, every culture needs to be redeemed. And there is honour and shame. But all our shame has been nailed at the cross, hasn't it? All our shame is there. We are children together. We all have things in our lives which we need people who are agents of renewal to be saying to us. If we live with this kind of culture and we do not see it redeemed, we won't actually live out what it means to be a child of God. Equally, however, I want to suggest to you that in other cultures, we over-desire freedom. The freedom to make things the way I want them to be. And what happens is choice becomes good. That's the way you measure what is good. If you have choice, you can choose to be who you want to be. And some of us live in both those cultures, actually. And it's quite confusing at times, isn't it? Uh, if you live between both those worlds. Lack of choice is bad and means oppression. So if you're going to speak into my life, I'm going to say to you, it's my choice to live that way. How dare you speak to me like that? I have the freedom to do what I want. My freedom is good. My choice is good. And so, in another sense, we find this whole idea of listening to one another, having people speak into our lives, very challenging. But as Christians, who are shaped by the gospel, who are being renewed by the gospel, who are objects of renewal and agents of renewal, 
This is what we are called to do. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you are to restore them spiritually with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself that you may too be tempted. Now, I said there were two things that made this quite difficult. And a third thing I just wanted to comment on briefly. One of the challenges we have in our current context is that pastors, um, not pastors here, <laughs> but pastors can become bullies. And that's really tricky because we would like to be able to speak into their lives. And I've been in the situation a number of times, actually, where I've had to speak into pastors' lives and they, like everybody else, don't want to listen. However, what makes that particularly difficult, and I'll just draw your attention to it, we can talk about it later if you'd like, is the way Paul acts in this letter. I don't know, if you're familiar with Galatians, it's like, wow, okay, so spirit of gentleness, where did that go? Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, we read, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he's quite forthright. He says, you are turning. But then it actually gets worse. And it kind of builds to this crescendo in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That hardly sounds like a spirit of gentleness. <laughs> it sounds quite bold and quite forthright. And so I've done a little bit of thinking about this, and I'll just briefly comment on it. Um, basically, I think what happens is this. We as Christians are called to speak into one another's lives to be objects of renewal and agent of renewal. The truth is, pastors have a responsibility to speak to their flock in general as well. And sometimes they need to speak a harsher word if their flock is moving in a particular direction. Now, I want to be very careful here because I think some pastors have abused that and take it, taken it into the bullying kind of area. I'm not suggesting that. But there is a distinction here. And I know as a pastor, that's one of the hardest things to do, to speak to a congregation and say, hey, I think if we're going to be people of God, we need to move this direction, and I don't think we're moving that direction. I want to call you back to the gospel. So sometimes I think pastors have a role of speaking strongly because they're trying to shepherd or be under shepherds of their flock. Just, just a comment to think through. Um, and I didn't want to pass it by because some of you will know Galatians well and you'll say, how does this fit together? Um, okay, the final thing I want to comment on here is this third section, which is about bearing one another's burdens. Okay, we are people uh, who have been transformed by the love of God, who belong to Jesus Christ, who have been adopted as God's children, and we're not to be conceited. We are to speak to, to be objects of renewal and agents of renewal, but we're also called to bear one another's burdens. Now, the sense here is that you need to be right close to someone if you're going to bear their burden. You actually need to understand who they are and what's going on in their lives. You need to understand uh, the kinds of crises they're facing. You need to understand what's happening in their family, what's happening to them at work, what's happening to them with their friendships. Paul here is inviting us into 
close personal relationships with one another, where we hear about others' lives, where we talk to each other about our lives. Sometimes we, we want become so closed off that we don't actually share with others. We don't actually say, by the way, this is what's happening for me. Could you, could you pray for me at the moment? And Paul is reminding us, because we are part of the adopted part of God's family, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to walk closely with one another. We are to walk closely day by day, week by week, year by year, as we come together um, as God's people. He goes on to say that if we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. And earlier on in Galatians chapter 5, he said this, for the law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. And so bearing one another's burdens is really in the end about Christians loving your neighbours as yourself. Now, I hope that's true of this church, and I want to encourage you to keep doing those things to love one another in that way. The final thing I just wanted to note is that also it says that we have to bear our own loads. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, it's different. The word burden and the word load here are quite different words. Um, and the idea here is that loads uh, have the sense of things that are your own responsibility. Things that belong to you. Things about your circumstances, about your life, about your personality, about who you are, that belong to you. We're not to go around blaming other people or putting our burdens on other people when actually we should be carrying things ourselves. And so Paul has this little caveat here to remind us that we need to bear loads ourselves. What's so interesting though is I think there is a sense here also in which we are accountable, so it's future-looking, for the way we carry our loads before our God. That he will call us into account for the way we carry our loads. So as 1 Corinthians 4 reminds us, he will bring to light that which is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At each time, he, we will receive their praise, praises from God. So there is a sense in which there's a distinction here about carrying one another's loads and having a load ourselves and being responsible for those sorts of things. So this morning we've covered a lot of ground, um, but basically what we've been saying is this. If we are part of God's story, it leads us to belonging to Christ Jesus, being adopted as his children, which leads to this transformation with implications for the way that we are to treat one another as Christians. We are to refuse conceit, not to act with conceit. We are to become objects and agents of renewal. And we are to bear one another's loads while also carrying our own load. Let me close in prayer. Father God, we give you thanks and praise for your word and we give you thanks and praise for the way that you continue to transform and change us. Father, we are particularly conscious that we are both objects and agents of renewal. And Father, we recognise that this is a contested and difficult area in our lives. And so Father, we ask that as we continue to grow, as we continue to work with one another, as we continue to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to carry our own loads, to act in ways that are not conceited, 
that you would continue to transform us into your likeness and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.